0: Well, why don't we uh, stand and read the Gospel of John, starting at verse 31 in chapter 19. Then the Jews, because it was a day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, and they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out and he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe for these scriptures came to pass to fulfill the scripture but a bone of him shall be broken and again another scripture says they shall look upon him who they have pierced after these things joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of jesus but a secret one for the fear of the jews asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a 100 pounds of weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with spices, as it is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Let's pray. Lord, it's been uh, rich being in the gospel of John for the last couple of years. And I know for myself and probably others in here too, we've learned a lot from your word and it's been changing in many areas of our life. I pray, God, that today's no exception, that um, whatever you have to say to us through your spirit would be implanted not us only in our hearts and our minds, but in the way we walk after this. We don't come here just to read words and change our thinking. Uh, we've come here to change our thinking so that we can live it out. And uh, like you say, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. And so we know you're connected to you by the way we live. I pray, God, that uh, today would be changing for many of us, including myself, whatever areas you have prepared for us. So we look forward to our time in your scriptures. Amen. <coughs> Man, it's kind of eerie in here it's so quiet Eerie in a good way I guess we're so used to the house environment where we can hear everything going on actually if you want to could Laura could you close that back door see Kevin edits it's the sermon so I can get all this stuff out eh? you'll probably leave it in and double it actually knowing that <clears throat> Well, since we spent our time last week looking in detail at the crucifixion, uh, I thought I would uh, skip the remaining verses describing the events surrounding the cross in verses 31 to 37, and do something we haven't done for a long time in our church, which is a character study. And character studies are great, because we learn about real people's lives in biblical times, what their lives were like, and the struggles they faced, and the strengths they had, and their weaknesses, and we can um, learn how they lived out their faith. And I find them useful because we can try to relate our lives to the people of biblical times. And I find in my preparation for these kind of things that they're both, the time is both enjoyable and challenging. um, Because you have to go through the entire Bible to find every verse you can on on the person that you're studying. So you get a big picture of what their life was like. It's easy to make a statement about someone and go, oh they must be like this when you haven't looked at all the scriptures and uh often too when you this challenging because when you do this you actually find out you have a lot more questions because the scripture is not there to fill in the entire detail of these people's lives so imagine if someone uh, was going to describe your life and they gave you six verses in the bible <laughs> and my job is to go i can i can describe what what keith is like by six verses in the bible i mean that would be just like whoa like how do you pull that off so i realized there's some holes in things but uh i did the best i could to um to put this all together. And the man we're going to look at today is found in our passage. We're going to do Joseph of Arimathea. Now, I'm not sure about you, but I've never heard anyone speak on Joseph of Arimathea before. And I don't know if, any, I'm sure someone has, but I just don't know who. I've never heard anything. And I don't know if you have either. People would tr- normally pick Nicodemus out of these, these two people. He's more famous and popular because he's mentioned in John chapter 3 in the beginning. But uh, I thought Joseph was a pretty neat character once I started looking into his life. So hopefully you'll enjoy listening about him as much as I did learning about him. So Joseph of Arimathea. We really know nothing about this guy in terms of his background. Scripture is silent on when he was born. It's silent on who his parents were, if he had brothers or sisters, if he had a small family, big family, and so on. The only thing we know is that Joseph was from Arimathea. And Luke tells us that Arimathea was a city located somewhere in Judea. One commentator suggested it may have been the name of Arimathea was a name for another city called Ramathaim Zophim, which was the birthplace of Samuel the prophet, back in 1 Samuel chapter one. So they think that that name changed over time. But really, the first thing of significance we learn about Joseph is recorded in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 15, verse 43. And we learned there that he's a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was made up of 71 members, including the high priest, which was Caiaphas, uh, who was responsible for crucifying Jesus, and uh, the chief priests, elders, and scribes. Now, they basically functioned as a supreme court in Israel. So if you had a civil or criminal matter to deal with as a Jewish person, and you couldn't resolve it like um, in-house you would go and face the Supreme Court of Israel which be the Sanhedrin and they would determine your fate now remember as Jews they wouldn't use your use the Roman law to try your case they would use the Mosaic law from the Old Testament being Jews now they're a very powerful and influential group of indivi- individuals as seen by their ability to just have um, uh, Jesus arrested, you know, have his mock trial and get him executed. So they're extremely powerful and influential So it was a group then that this is a group that Joseph of Arimathea belonged to He was one of the top 71 people in all of Israel in terms of influence power and authority Now this is a very prestigious position to hold and it gives you a picture into the kind of guy he was He would have known the Old Testament Right if you're going to try cases in the Old Testament law, you, you would know the Old Testament So you'll have read the scriptures um, uh, I can't prove this, but a lot of people think he's probably a Pharisee, not a Sadducee. And Pharisees were known for uh, their their understanding of the law and the traditions of men that they had in place as well. Nicodemus was a was a Pharisee, his buddy. Now, a couple commentaries I consulted, including uh, Peter Fast, our resident expert on Jewish faith and culture. And if you haven't heard him talk, you will one day. He'll be speaking at our church again in the future. But uh, he, I spoke to him on the phone and asked him about the Sanhedrin. And he said that the, the members of the Sanhedrin were often quite wealthy as they came from arist- aristocratic families. So it would be kind of like old family money. You know? like, it's like those people who have ranches. And you happen to be born into a, a family that owns a ranch. And so you kind of come from old money. And so you're, if you're in the Sanhedrin, you, you were likely to come from old money and these aristocratic families. Well, we find out that Joseph is actually rich. Lo and behold, Matthew 27, 57 records that Joseph was a rich man. So whether he had worked hard for it or inherited it, which I think he probably did, we don't know. But he definitely fit the typical profile of a Sanhedrin member. Now perhaps evidence of his wealth is found in verse 41. It says that uh, there was a garden there and there was a new tomb which no no one had yet been laid. We find out later this was Joseph's tomb. He actually owned a brand new tomb, so maybe that's a picture of his wealth. But we get some details of his spiritual life as well. In Luke, he's recorded as a man who was looking for the kingdom of God. He was looking for the kingdom of God. Now, think about that through a Jewish lens. What does it mean if you're a Jew and you're looking for the kingdom of God? Well, that it's not like you're like sitting around waiting for like the palm trees to open up or you know all of all branches to grow. I mean, it was strictly in. Um, the category of uh, waiting for the anticipation of the Messiah. If you're, if you're looking for the kingdom of God, you're waiting for the Messiah to show up and deliver you as a nation. Your, your Messiah was going to come as a conquering king. He was going to free your nation from repression. In this day it was the Romans oppressing them. And he was going to reestablish Israel as an independent, autonomous nation under God's rule. And many believed also that it was at this time the resurrection of the dead was going to take place. That was common in some Jewish thoughts. Now, just so you know, um, we can see this Jewish hope present after Jesus's death and resurrection, amongst his disciples, uh, in two different locations. Remember Luke 24:21. This is the road to Emmaus. Jesus has died, resurrected. Two men—they don't—the two men are walking to the, on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus appears to them. They don't know it's Jesus, but he appears to them, and they're sad and they're defeated and they have their tail between their legs. And Jesus says, "What's the matter, boys?" And the boys say haven't you heard what's been going on in jerusalem the messiah has been killed and then he says yeah so keep going and then he says well here's the thing we were hoping that he was going to redeem israel we were hoping he was going to restore israel from what to get rid of pilate get rid of rome and get the messiah here to rule once and for all in Acts chapter 1 6 jesus has appeared to the disciples for 40 days off and on after his resurrection He's gathered them for one last time before his ascension into heaven, and he promises, the, promises them in Acts one six the coming of the Holy Spirit. And what was the question the disciples asked? There was ten left, right, because Judas is gone. And actually, there's eleven. There's eleven. Yeah, Judas is gone. But they ask him, "What's going to happen?" And and he said, "Is it, at this time you are going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Are you going to restore it, Jesus, now that you've been resurrected?" And Jesus says, "It's not for you to know that time." alright so you can see the Jewish hope of the coming of the Messiah and what he was going to accomplish for Israel's nation and this gives you a picture of Joseph's mindset he's waiting in anticipation for for Jesus to come although he doesn't know pre-Jesus that Jesus is going to be the Messiah But there's a lesson I don't want to miss from Joseph's life for us you see the New Testament calls you and I to be people with a mindset same mindset as Joseph consider Jesus's words In Luke 12 36 he says be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks so Jesus is speaking and he says you want to be like this person waiting for their master to come home that's what you what it is to be a follower of me later on uh, Paul repeats the same kind of theme uh, in the book of Titus He says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to love sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our Lord, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Both Jesus and Paul basically teach the believers and followers of him in those days, you are to be known for people who are waiting in expectation for for the Lord to return. That's what it is to be a Christian. You know, in this world, this world, sometimes we love it, sometimes we hate it. It just depends on what side of the fence you're on on any given day. But regardless of whether you love it or hate it, we're called to be ones waiting in great anticipation for the return of Jesus Christ. And of course, for us, it's the second coming of the Lord, not the first coming. So I guess the question for you and I today is, are you waiting in great anticipation? Are you, or do you love this place more than what God's got promised for you in glory? <laughs> because you're called to change your mindset. You, as much as you might like it here in many ways, it's, heaven's going to be far greater than anything you can imagine when you get to be with the Lord. So what we learn about Joseph here is that he's a guy looking for the, an expectation for the Messiah. But what's cool about this guy is that we actually learn that he come to believe that Jesus was a fulfillment of that promise. So as he's looking, he notices Jesus, and he thinks, this is the guy. He's the fulfillment. How do we know this? In verse 38 of our passage, he says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, being a disciple. So at some point, he's not a disciple, and then later on, he is. Matthew 27, 57 says that he became a disciple. So that's even the greater phraseology, because it means that he wasn't one, and now he is. So at some point, if he became a disciple, it means he had to put his faith in Jesus. He had to believe that he was the Messiah and believe that he was the fulfillment of God's plan. Now, the scriptures don't tell us how and when he became a, disi- a disciple. But let me share my thoughts, and this is just my thoughts, and it's I'm not saying I'm right, but I want to give you a fun, a fun scenario of what I think might happen for, for, for Joseph and how he might have come to faith. Interesting in John 7 verse 50 we find out that Nicodemus is a member of the Sanhedrin so there's 71 guys in all of Israel Nicodemus is on the Sanhedrin so is Joseph and lo and behold who's here at the burial of Jesus Nicodemus and Joseph side by side so clearly they have a relationship before this and if you look at this text you might think they don't know each other they're two obsolete guys well they're both judging cases together talking together all the time going to work together they know each other very very well Well, or remember when Nicodemus um, went to Jesus earlier in his in his ministry he came up to Jesus and said made this statement to him he said uh, where'd it go well, that's interesting. He says, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. So Nicodemus, prior to the crucifixion, comes to Jesus privately at night and says, We know you're from God. No one can do the miracles they're doing unless they're from God. Now, what's interesting is that Nicodemus and Joseph are friends. But we also know that, Nick, that Joseph is looking for the kingdom of God. So he's reading the Old Testament scriptures and he's looking for signs to point to Jesus Christ. And there's different, there's different passages in the Old Testament that talk about the Messiah being a miracle worker. So maybe, so perhaps he knows about Nicodemus' conversation with him. He, sees the, he knows the Old Testament scriptures. He sees the signs that they're doing. And he puts two and two together and goes, this has to be the fulfillment. He has to be the fulfilment of everything I've been waiting for and looking for. And perhaps that that is how it went down. But again, regardless if I'm right or wrong, it doesn't really matter. Because we know that as a member of the Sanhedrin, Joseph actually stood in complete opposition to his colleagues who had just put Jesus to death. That's a significant observation when you're the top 71 leaders in your whole country and you stand opposition to your high priest or your prime minister. See in, in Luke in 20, chapter 23 verse 50 and 51 It's recorded that Joseph was a good and righteous man Now why was he good and righteous the next words say this he had not consented to the Sanhedrin's decision and action to kill Jesus So while they're all saying crucify him crucify him get the Romans to rest him um, Joseph is standing back going I ain't part of this But even though Joseph was a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ then He had a weakness. He still had a weakness. And it's a weakness that maybe you and I can identify with. (laughs) Look in verse 38 again. He says, after these things, Joseph of Arithea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one. A secret one for fear of the Jews. That's an interesting description of Joseph, considering the Bible portrays this kind of faith in a negative light. You see secret disciples are actually seen negatively in Scripture John 12 42 I'll read it to you many of the rulers that's the Sanhedrin many of the rulers believed in him but because of the Pharisees they were not confessing him for they feared that they would be put out of the synagogue so how do we reconcile this how could Joseph be, on one hand defined as a disciple And yet on the other hand, one who does not confess Jesus and make his faith public, how does that work? (laughs) Well, I'll try to answer that for you. I'll make an attempt. But let me just first off say this. Humanly speaking, humanly speaking, you might be able to understand why he was in this predicament to keep his faith private. And again, it's so important for us to understand the Sanhedrin and what he belonged to as the key observation for this. He, you see, his fear is warranted and understandable, considering that he belonged to that group. He wasn't fearing the Boy Scouts. Right? He's fearing the most powerful group of individuals in Israel who've already proven their hatred and hostility towards Jesus. They had a mock trial and killed him. And they threatened, previously, anyone who confessed Jesus as the Messiah to be kicked out of the synagogue. Now, the synagogue life in the Jewish culture is everything to them. That's the whole their whole cycle of their life and their whole faith, like their whole day-to-day living was centered around the synagogue. I mean, even I mean it's far greater than this. But even if we said to you guys, like you're kicked out of Genesis House, you can never come back. I mean, I you know it might I hope it would hurt you, (laughs) right? Because it would hurt me, but I hope it would hurt you. But I mean, it'd be nothing like kicked out of a synagogue because you could still go to another church. You couldn't go to another synagogue. It was you'd be out of the synagogue completely. You could never go back to a church. Right, So uh, you can see that his faith, is, his fear is warranted, humanly speaking, because the, the, the Jewish life that he knows that the faith life would be completely, he'd be t- completely cut from it. So he had a legitimate reason to worry and fear. I think the comparison would be something like this. Imagine uh, you belong to Isis, or you belong to a devout Muslim family, and through various circumstances, you become a Christian. God appears to you in a vision, you go to a church, you hear someone speak about Christ, you read a book, whatever, and you become a Christian. I don't think that very next day you're going to be proclaiming uh, your faith to your parents or your your religious terrorist leader. You probably keep that pretty private initially, especially initially just because of fear of the people that you know would show hostility towards you. Another thing to consider when looking at Joseph's fear, humanly speaking, is that Even the most greatest men of faith in the Bible struggled with fear at some point in their life. Remember Peter, prior to the crucifixion, denied Jesus three times. But many forget this was not Peter's last time that he feared man more than God. It was many years later that his fear of men's approval got him in trouble once again. Look at the Galatian passage in chapter 2. Now this is Paul speaking. Uh, But when Peter came to Antioch, I, Paul, had to oppose him to his face. For what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from those people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. This is the man who led the revival at Pentecost in Jerusalem. This is the man that's led thousands upon thousands to Christ and, and the power of the Holy Spirit would proclaim healing on people and they would be healed. This is not like some weak little boy scout again. This is like the, the very man that Jesus said privately, on you, Peter, I'll build my church. Years later, whose witness had the power to do miracles, profess the gospel, been his number one man Later on, under pressure from the approval of his fellow Jews, sides with the Jewish old way of um, the old Mosaic law and won't eat with Gentile people because he's too unclean. The pressures of the fear of man got to him. And oh boy, can we relate. <laughs> At least I can. But what about Paul? Did Paul ever fear men? No way, Right? Paul had been facing a lot of threats and persecution and had a pretty rough go. Um, and he was forced to flee the region of Thessalonica and ended up in Corinth. And uh, the, the Lord knew that he was shrinking back potentially in, in what he was going to be proclaiming because of all the, the tension and pressure he was facing. So God pierced, appears to him in a vision to encourage him. Listen to what he says to Paul. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision and told him, don't be afraid, speak out. Don't be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack and harm you, for many people in the city belong to me. So Paul stayed there for the next year and a half teaching the Word of God. And last but not least, the disciples, the genuine followers of Christ, all missing on the day Jesus was crucified. They weren't there. Mark 1450, with the exception of John, all ran away and went into hiding. Now, I want I have to be careful here because I don't want you I don't want to normalize that it's okay to fear men over loyalty to Christ that's not good that's not normal Jesus himself said in Matthew 10: 33 whoever denies me before men I'll deny them before my father who is in heaven I'm just purely giving you examples to show you that fearing men is a realistic possibility as a believer and that uh, it's something that's pretty normal in the Christian life and the Bible never supports though the concept of secret private faith in 1st John four fifteen, he says whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God God abides in him and he in God the implication if you don't confess Jesus as the Son of God God does not abide in you and God and you and God okay so we're not supporting we're not supporting um, the secret disciple, this the secret disciple private faith thing. We're just saying that, humanly speaking, fear is a realistic possibility that they had to face and we have to face as well. And I think we can relate to Joseph in this. But here's the observation, I don't want you to miss regarding Joseph. You know, regardless of where he was in this, on the spectrum of faith and however long he was in secret, and it, at the maximum it could be is three years, right? But i mean there's no way he came to know christ on the first day of his ministry so he's maybe he's a disciple of jesus for a year right i don't know but here's the point he chose to break his silence in a real tangible way and he chose to overcome his fear of men's approval and demonstrate his love for christ how look what he does in verse 38 he goes and asks Pilate that he might take away the body of jesus and Pilate granted him permission and then later in 41, now where there was a, crucif- uh, where there was a garden, he then places him in his tomb. You see, this is important, church. When he went to ask Pilate for the body of Christ, this was Joseph's coming out party. <laughs> coming out party for where he stood in his allegiance to God. See, if he wanted to protect his reputation amongst his fellow colleagues, taking the initiative to ensure Jesus had a proper burial was not going to further his cause. He probably lost a lot of friends in the Sanhedrin that day and probably maybe even experienced personal hostility. see, remember, it's these guys that made more than one attempt to stone Jesus in three years of his ministry. They threatened to kick anyone out of the synagogue if they confessed Christ. And because of their hatred and jealousy, threw a mock trial and led us to, to his execution. Yet as a member of the Sanhedrin, knowing their stance on Jesus, he chose to identify with Christ at the crucifixion. His willingness to ask Pilate for the body had given him, and pro- giving him a proper burial, was was incredible. But it was even more significant when you understand the Jewish belief surrounding the way in which Jesus died. You see, what's the Jewish method of stone, of, of dying, or killing someone? Stoning. How was Jesus killed? Crucified. Do you know what Deuteronomy taught about people who were hung on a tree? You know what the law of God said. If someone has committed a crime worthy of death and is executed and hung on a tree, the body must not remain hanging from the tree overnight. You must bury the body that same day. Here's why. For anyone who is hung is cursed in the sight of God. In this same way, you will prevent the defilement of the land the Lord your God is giving you as your special possession. In the Jewish belief system, Jesus is a cursed man. But not cursed by man, cursed by God. And so when you look at someone hung on a tree, like let's say they were stoned and they were hung on a tree by a a rope as a demonstration to Israel not to sin, or they they would say that person is cursed by God himself. Now what's amazing is Paul picks up on this in his letter to the Galatians, and he reminds the Galatians that cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree, but he makes it clear to the church there that Jesus was cursed for your benefit. So he was bearing your curses on the tree, but he's going back to Deuteronomy law. You see the power when you understand the Jewish culture what Joseph is actually saying here by identifying with Jesus you'd, you'd miss this if you don't understand the Jewish culture he's identifying with a cursed man and everyone in the Sanhedrin knows it and everyone in Jewish culture knows it and he's like I'm in I'm gonna make make it public who I identify with and I don't care what anyone says but his identification went even further well it's not recorded in John Matthew tells us that the tomb that Joseph chose to bury Jesus in was not strangers, not a friend's, but his own. In Matthew 27, 60, it says that Joseph's, this tomb was Joseph's. You see, here's what's key, church. Joseph didn't know the resurrection was going to happen. Nobody knew that. What's he doing? He's like, I'm going to take a brand new tomb that was probably reserved for a loved one, that cost me probably a lot of money, and I'm going to give it to Jesus Christ permanently. I'm going to give it to him permanently. This cursed man of God I'm going to identify with. He's going to get my personal tomb that was reserved for someone else that I loved. When you put all these details together, you see why in Mark, in Mark chapter 15, verse 43, he wrote this about Joseph, that when he went to Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus, it took he had to gather up courage in order to do so. He, Joseph knows what he's doing and what it's going to cost him to make his faith public. He had to gather up courage to go to Pilate. He's not scared of Pilate, he's scared of the Sanhedrin and his own friends and what they're going to think. But I believe this is Joseph's coming out party, for lack of a better phrase, to basically say, no more secret discipleship. I'm in. I'm in. A Massive lesson for us church When was the last time you or I in a real tangible public way made our faith known to people When was the last time you had to overcome any fears to speak about your relationship and connection to Jesus Christ One week ago One month ago One year ago Never. Here's my challenge to you today. All of you live in a secular context. Christians in this culture are virtually like unicorns. They hardly exist. They don't exist. Unicorns don't exist. (laughs) Just so you know. Scotland, they do. Right. But all of you live in a secular context. Why not this week, make this week your coming out party? Why don't you, like Joseph of Arithea, gain courage to tell someone in an opportunity about who Jesus Christ is and how it works in your life to be relate to him? Talk to God in your prayer life. Say, look, I know the workers are few, but the harvest is plentiful. I want to be a worker this week and set up an opportunity for me to share my life with someone about what it is to walk with God. I'll give you a further challenge. Why don't you, after service, make someone accountable in the church? So you walk up to someone and say, by the way, I'm gonna do this, and I'm letting you know that I'm gonna do this by next Sunday, so you can ask me next Sunday if I'm gonna do this. Let's not play games. This church ain't gonna grow by staying silent. This church will never grow by you staying silent. And it won't stay, it's not going to grow by me staying silent either. So I'm in the same boat as you. But you read about Joseph of Arimathea. when you understand the pressure of who he belonged to, and what it could have cost him in this culture for the things he was doing for the sake of Jesus Christ, we have nothing to face in terms of fear like that. We have nothing to fear compared to him. But it took him courage, and it will take you courage too. No, I don't want you to think because I'm your pastor I'm bulletproof in confidence. That's not true. I'm just like you. I fear rejection. I want people to like me. I also get fearful that I won't know how to answer people's questions, which is often why we don't often speak about things. And my heart pounds and gets anxious, just like yours would in a spiritual conversation. But when I enter into conversations, I make a conscious choice to do so. It's a decision. It's a matter of the will. It's a matter of the will. And let me give you a little secret of how I gain courage. It helps to remember my past. <laughs> it helps to remember my past. Listen, when you, when you understand the depth of your sin and what you've done to put Jesus on the cross, when you think about those things, that's pretty strong motivation for why you should tell people about them. But if you don't understand the depth of your sin, you'll stay quiet. Because if you, But if you understand the crucifixion and what it meant, it'll make you proclaim his name. Remember what you're forgiven for because the people we're talking to need the same kind of forgiveness and have done the same things that we have. So what are some lessons we can take from Joseph? First one is this. As believers, we should be waiting with eagerness for the Lord's return. Joseph was looking for the kingdom of God and we saw that Jesus and Paul both told us and exhorted us that we should be as well. I was thinking about the Lord's Prayer the other day. We say, you know, we say it and teach our kids the Lord's Prayer, but listen to the words. Like, our Father who art in heaven, thy kingdom come. It's the second line in the Lord's Prayer. He, we're to pray for the kingdom to come. We, we're, we are to, This is Jesus teaching his disciples what to pray for. He says, pray for, for the kingdom to come. Let's, get, let's, let's move on. Let's get to glory. Right? You want Jesus to come back. So again, that's one thing we have to think about as Christians. So, you know, where are you and I at in this? Do we love the world and the world we live in? Do we want to stay here? Or do we want to look forward to being united to Jesus Christ and Him coming back? Second lesson. As believers, it's an unfortunate reality that we often desire the approval of men over over and above God. Right? It's an unfortunate reality that we often desire the approval of men over and above God. Now, I hope you understand from the sermon that it's normal to feel fear. Don't feel guilty when you feel fear. It's like you don't even with like the area of um, with uh, temptation. People think when I'm tempted, oh, I'm sinning. You're not sinning in temptation. (laughs) Otherwise, Jesus would have sinned because Satan tempted him. You're only you're only sinful when you bite the bait and then you get hooked. You're not. You don't feel. You're not guilty when you feel fear, when your heart races, and you and you feel like clamming up. That has nothing to do with it, because Peter and Paul and these guys and disciples had these things as well. I mean, we, we. It's okay to feel those things. The question is, what do we do in those fears? What do we actually do with those fears? What decisions are we going to make in the midst of those fears? Which leads me to my third lesson then. As believers the issue for God is when our fear drives us to reject that we are relationally connected to him right God's issue is when our fear drives us to reject the fact that we actually are connected to him we deny him we deny him so people ask us about Christianity people ask us about our faith and we say ah oh, well, you know I don't I don't really believe in anything or I don't, I don't know this Jesus person doesn't really make a, mean a lot to me again this is not stumbling through your like I'm not saying you're not denying Jesus or you're relationally disconnected when you're, when you're fumbling throughout to an answer a question, because you're trying. That's not it. That's when you just flat out reject and say no. Or you have there's conversations, you intentionally remove yourself because you're terrified they're going to ask you about Christianity. You want nothing to do with Jesus in those moments. So this is true in a one-time event, like Peter in the Galatian Church, or a permanent pattern, like the members of the Sanhedrin in John 12. They fear to confess Jesus for fear of the Pharisees. So they never confessed them because of fear of the Pharisees. So you can do it one time or habitually. Right? So either one. That's why Joseph is a great testimony for us because Joseph chose to overcome his secret discipleship and move on into a public, tangible faith. And finally, there's no such thing as a long-term secret disciple of Christ. <laughs> There's no such thing as a long-term secret disciple of Christ. Faith might be a private thing in our culture, but not to Jesus, not in Christianity. At some point, we have to make our faith public to someone in our work, someone in our family, someone we know well, like a friend. I mean, who knows? And the pressure is going to be high, but at some point, people have to know where we stand. And that's a great opportunity to make it public with your friends and in the workplace, or your family in your workplace, because these are the areas that are the most highest pressure. Once you make that declaration, you've now made yourself accountable to God and you've made yourself accountable to the people that know you. And so now you, you've got a, a, a tangible measurement for which to live your life by. Um, there's more to be said. and I'm sure you guys have some questions and so do I because I had to work through a lot of different things. But I'd be very curious on your, of your thoughts and your opinions on we spoke about today but uh hopefully you know a lot more about joseph than you did before we started and uh who knew that he was such a man of of uh more such a person we could model our lives after in so many different ways but thank god for the scriptures because they open up the reality of who these people were and how we can relate to them